It's been unseasonably cold here in London for the entrepreneurs team in the last couple of weeks. Very much the time for technical layers, cosy woolens, a spot of loden, even the odd puffer. The importance of dressing right in a cold snap got us thinking about entrepreneurial folk who know a thing or two about wearing the right stuff, whatever the weather. So today we're checking in with the Chief Innovation Officer at Pangaea, a brand operating at the cutting edge of innovation in material science to advance their offering of premium lifestyle products and garments. As well as that, we'll be hearing from a clever founder who's been introducing unknown or little-known Scandinavian brands like 66 North to the UK through his Nordic Outdoor retail brand since 2005. So wrap up this winter in future-proof tech and textiles and garments finished in the proving grounds of the Arctic North. Two brilliant entrepreneurs are properly kitted up to join us on this week's programme. This is The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. First up, it's a pleasure to welcome the Chief Innovation Officer of Pangaea, Dr. Amanda Parks. Well, Amanda, welcome. Uh, hopefully, suitably warm welcome to Monocle. Uh, before we get into what Pangaea is up to at the moment, I want to talk a bit about you and your portfolio, your experience. It covers off all sorts, uh, material science, fashion, entrepreneurship. It's quite a long list. How do you refer to and explain to people what you do and what your role is? So I call myself a fashion scientist, which is, I'm not sure if I invented that term, but it's a kind of an emerging discipline that did not exist when I was in college, right? So 20 years later, here's where we are. And it has, I think, a lot to do with this evolution of We've come from the industrial age, moved into the digital information age, and now we're at this intersection of the biological age. So this fourth industrial revolution where we have decrypted the human genome, we know a lot about DNA, and we're starting to understand biology a lot, lot more. So that's at the very base of where we're at in terms of this intersection of digital information, technology data, and biological data. And material science is really a place where that meets. Biotech is at the core of a lot of what we're thinking about with new materials and how we actually can better understand the natural world and work in conjunction with biology and nature as opposed to opposing it so that technology is making our world more sustainable and not less. Well, I wonder then, your route in terms of the Pangaea story, was it that you were attracted to working in a sector that maybe has more work to do than than others? If we look at kind of textiles production and fashion in terms of problems with sustainability, circularity, it's the perfect place for someone with your combination of interests to jump in and try and get stuck into? Yeah, and you're sensing it exactly right that I saw it as an opportunity. The first part of my career was really about getting the engineering and scientific knowledge through all the kind of standard domains. But this love for fashion was always in the back end. So I'm attracted to these spaces of fabrics and the aesthetics of it. And I also love kind of cultural part of fashion as this sort of means of personal expression. And so, of course, you know, the best thing you can do with your career to have it be meaningful is to chase what you love that also has a kind of crossover with purpose. And spending seven years at MIT getting a PhD and creating robotics and building lots and lots of circuits and watching how much e-waste we're creating and being tortured by that and also having this kind of feeling that in research and in kind of technology development, it's kind of either things go off in the direction of this is the most innovative, it's high performance, et cetera, or something is sustainable. And it seemed like there was this lost opportunity to try to bring those two things together. And material science is exactly where they need to come together, where we're analyzing what is the end of life 
of something before you actually design the product or design the material itself. Just on this point about your skill set and that sort of medley of interesting experiences, if we talk in more general terms, Amanda, about what makes a good entrepreneur, is there something to be said then for looking with fresh eyes at this intersectionality, at these different combinations of skills and disciplines, at working, I guess, a little bit outside of the conventional when it comes to the building blocks that the individuals have? Yeah, I mean, I came from the MIT Media Lab, which is a really amazing academic model, which is totally interdisciplinary, intersectional in like the highest level. It's not just in name. The whole kind of crossover of opening up just the space of ideas and somebody else's perspective and small, small things that, you know, I tell kind of a story where we had this amazing, unbelievable machine shop, every CAD controlled machine. And there's a lowly sewing machine in amongst of this and a high tech sewing machine, quite frankly. But I remember sort of actually having to teach a lot of, quite frankly, male engineers how to use the sewing machine. And I remember them, you know, they can control and program anything. But they were amazed to find out that there was a second needle in the bottom of it. That's how it works. So I think there are these these just kind of cross sections. And then suddenly that opens up this whole other space. And that's how it was for me, too, with things that you aren't intentionally trying to learn are the things that start to influence what you're already thinking about. And then I think there's also, yeah, when you are super curious, you also get super bored (laughs) really quickly. So I find it to be a fun intersectional space. It's very challenging and some people are really uncomfortable there, but it's about getting comfortable with the discomfort. I think I follow and that makes sense. And it's funny that echoes across a lot of the conversations that I've had with people who are working really at the cutting edge of of certain sectors and industries. To that point, then, let's talk a bit about how your background and these collaborations with your colleagues who are working in product development as well drive completely new approaches to materials, to new finishes. How does one get started with yes, that process? Yeah. Presumably you need a lot of a lot of money, a lot of time, some very sympathetic <laughs> and understanding, broad-minded backers. But yeah. how does it all come and, together? Well, the Pangaea founding team and Pangaea itself kind of came from this desire from people in across different professions, you know, fashion, technology, science, media, finance, kind of recognizing that there was this hole in the space, kind of independently. But we came together, we were working on a fund called Future Tech Lab, which was looking at investing in future of material technologies and specifically focused on fashion and textiles as being something that was underrepresented. And, you know, this is kind of following the kind of crash of 08 and moving into people thinking we should be investing in things that are actually world changing and not just the next app. So this idea that Silicon Valley had kind of perpetuated from the late 90s that everything has to have a two-year ROI or it's not worth it is sort of the convergence of that kind of crash, that model crashing out and climate change becoming very obviously needing to be addressed is where this space was emerging, that this was something that needed to be addressed that was hard to raise money in. And so that meant that there's a lot of opportunities there. We came together and were investing in certain materials, and I spent a better part of almost two years kind of cruising around the world, visiting startups and the leading labs. And I'd already been in this space for quite a long time, but just really mapping the global network of what's going on. As we were investing, it became clear that one of the things that was happening was there was this sort of valley of death where these startups that are doing really innovative material work, first of all, they can't speak the language of fashion. Like it's oil and water when they speak to each other. They don't even have the same vocabulary, basically. They'd get to a certain point and the brand wasn't willing to take enough of a risk Whereas like tech companies will often take bigger risks with smaller startups, but fashion is very risk averse. And you'd have these startup companies trying to kind of 
move into fashion not knowing how to operate in that world. And, and there's no reason why we should have scientists making fashion brands. It's not a good use of their time. And so we saw that we could be this bridge to show that you can make good, responsible, beautifully designed products from these responsible materials and kind of be the partner shepherd to get into a place of manufacturing and commercialization. Because a lot of fashion brands were saying, oh, they're not ready, we can't do it. And somebody has to take the leap. And so this was kind of an opportunity that we saw to prove out the companies we were investing in that we could get product out of them. And then the brand itself took over bigger than the actual investments we were making. And that's become our role where we still have a hybrid role where we are trying to simultaneously invest in startups or even in early stage research and then get it across the finish line through all the innovation readiness levels. We have an entire consumer brand where we can take over making product, prototyping, manufacturing, e-commerce sales, image, you know, everything that everything that's important about selling fashion. The business is as much of an experiment in the innovations that we're developing as is the business model and the way that we think about product and innovation and the structure of the company. So we're still figuring all that out as well. Well, and I did want to ask you a bit about scalability and in terms of broad brush ambition. It's one of these interesting areas where I guess the more successful you are and the more profound the changes that you help to bring, the more disruptive you are, in a sense, the less you'd almost want people to be talking about you. Because if you can affect some really serious change, maybe these new products and materials go into the into yeah. the supply chain at such a level that it stops being novel or the alternative or the more expensive way to do things. It becomes the, the new normal. You want to try and write part of the necessity yeah. out of the picture, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I like to say that the most sustainable product is the one that nobody knows is sustainable because it's just the better product that people want to buy anyways. Because you don't want to have to convince consumers to buy something because it's sustainable and pull on their conscience. You want them to just want the product, and then this is a byproduct of it. But I'll also say that in terms of thinking about infrastructure, with you know, there's different levels of kind of how we transition through innovation. So there could be something that is sort of evolutionary innovation, where we're making something that already exists better, versus something that's more of a revolution, kind of next step, maybe needs a new process, versus a true disruption, which is like, an entirely new way of manufacturing that needs an entirely new infrastructure. And you have to gauge accordingly if you are thinking about something that is a biofabricated and needs a new factory system, like things like mycelium leather. It is going to take a lot longer for the payoff or for any real product to come out, but it also will be a true level of like how we can completely get rid of toxic animal leather. So these kinds of things, you weigh that back and forth. And inside of our company, we're trying to focus on a balance between those What's next gen that can come out in a year that we can help push forward in our existing factory infrastructure that can be a drop in? Where do we need to invest time and energy into the longer term? And just on that point, it's interesting to me that we've had a couple of conversations here at Monocle and indeed with some other entrepreneurs on this program about the idea that you can address sustainability not only by being at the cutting edge of innovation, but also by simply buying less, yeah. buying better, spending more money, counterintuitively perhaps. But on something like leathers, for example, do you feel there is a future where, of course, we use it? We we will have byproduct from animal husbandry, and if used correctly and integrated well and the supply chains are more rigorous, there's a place for these things to coexist happily with the kinds of 
completely novel innovations that you guys are working on. How do you see yeah. that? Again, is that are those things in opposition or yeah, can they well, all sit happily together? Well, this is why I, you know, I think about this idea of high-tech naturalism and the return to the biocycle. And the definition of sustainability for me is that it's always a series of compromises and priorities, right? There's always a kind of cost to everything, even if it's a, a new technology. And so you're kind of evaluating that. And yes, basically think about something like cotton, Cotton is an amazing fiber. There's a reason why we've been using it for hundreds of years, thousands of years, actually. But it's the way that we've over-industrialized it to take over land and to ruin soil and to have so many pesticides. And so if we think back to pulling, you know, pulling the infrastructure of how we grow things into a better space, that we diversify fibers, create a more resilient supply chain. So we're starting to use all different kinds of plant fibers that haven't been explored as extensively, and we blend them with cotton. So it absolutely is about this crossover. And I also think that there's still, we're still in the kind of early stages of really figuring out what is the most sustainable approach. And I fully agree with you that the idea of using animal leather when it's a waste product in a particular structure, like you think about kind of native tribal cultures in the Amazon, of course, you're not going to try to <laughs> ship them beyond burger, right? That doesn't make any sustainable sense. So we, thinking about how the earth works and return to biosystems, I mean, it's just the difference of everything can be very sustainable until it gets too big or too, you know, <laughs> distributed. Or how, how do we how do we put an analysis cap on how we measure things? So that's the kind of systems for measurement and data analysis and all of that, for, especially around like life cycle assessments and, and impact assessments is a huge emerging difficult part of the science. Well, and speaking of science, I don't want to nominate you as the spokesperson for all scientific folks everywhere yeah. on the planet, but you do seem to wear quite lightly this slightly sort of ambassadorial role. I know it's important <laughs> in terms of your role even within the business, of course. Are we at a better moment, I think, during the sort of peak Trumpism? I know, obviously, him and that's still around, but at least yeah. he's not in the White House. But there was this anti-science backlash. We had it here in the UK, certainly. I think wherever in the world you go, there was this idea that we'd had enough of experts, which was so damaging. And then you get yeah. Brexit and you get Trump and you get Bolsonaro and all the rest of it. Are we very slowly turning a corner? Do you feel that there's a little bit more respect and belief in the efficacy of taking a scientific approach? And are we getting anywhere with that narrative? It's a really good question. And it's so hard to answer because I'm so in it. As a brand, we put a lot of time and energy into educating about the science and trying to make it approachable while still not dumbing it down. So we'll use the hard words. And there's so much, I have so much respect for people who do work on brand and marketing in a responsible way that they kind of know where to put the right amount of information and when, and, and that kind of stuff that is its own science. But, you know, we're experimenting with that. And so on one level, we have a huge positive response towards it. And then on the other side, yeah, the kind of rise of climate deniers. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't know. What to, I, <laughs> as a scientist, you naturally have to be optimistic. Literally, your profession is about trying to do something that seems impossible or that you're pretty much destined to fail at. And you have to just kind of keep getting up. And, and that's part of the joy of it. I have a kind of optimistic outlook that the science has the solutions if we can get them into the correct economic, cultural and political spectrum. And I mean, I, I think a lot of my job is what I think of as scientific diplomacy, which is kind of convincing people to do the right thing or, or, you know, like not trying to lecture at people. But I think one of the things I love about fashion is that it is a very fun medium. And oh my gosh, is there any better way to reach teenage girls, right? So this, this I love, right, just from a woman scientist point of view. But getting people interested in issues through something that they feel personally connected to, they feel there's a cultural tie, and then it's not 
you know, saying everything is bad and lecturing about carbon. Definitely. Well, just finally, remind me, I read, I can't remember an op-ed piece somewhere recently about the need for the media, leaders in business and other sort of spokespeople to be more optimistic in order to inspire the next generations, maybe, yeah. you know, teens or now pre-teens at the moment who we constantly talk about, we're selling them down the river and they'll be indebted and they'll be choked by carbon and the rest of it. We can't be too negative. The necessary optimism of successful science, mm-hmm. we have to get into the mainstream discourse as well right. in order to give people something to, to cling on to and yeah. focus on. That is really important, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I feel people talk a lot about the idea of fast fashion and is it dying? And But if you look at teenage girls, they love thrift shopping. This has become cool to them. I feel more hopeful when I think, oh, well, fast fashion is going to die because if teenage girls won't go into the stores, then it'll collapse on itself. So I like to think of it that way that, you know, you kind of empower them to use their own power as the next generation. Dr. Amanda Parks, Chief Innovation Officer at Pangaea. Thanks for being on the programme. And you can learn more about Pangaea and some of the projects and innovation Amanda's been talking about by heading to pangaea.com. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. Next up on the programme, we're meeting another innovative entrepreneur and one who also knows a thing or two about the importance of the right fabrics and their weatherproof properties. Kasper Odqvist is the founder of Nordic Outdoor and has been introducing and educating us to the best Scandi technical lifestyle brands since 2005. It's a pleasure to welcome Kasper to Midori House. Kasper, a very warm welcome to Monocle. So tell me, you're in London, I guess, partly... Checking up because pretty recently, just in August, Nordic Outdoor opened in Covent Garden, storied shopping retail venue uh, right in the heart of the city. That must be very exciting. It is very exciting. The point is, when it comes to our line of work, talking about outdoor, outdoor, of course, you would think of it as a great retail will be in the, the outdoor hotspots of the UK. However, retail is retail and big cities are where the real retail sits. And um, when it comes to outdoor, Covent Garden has become the sort of hub for it. And we had the opportunity to get a small shop in between all the big boys, if you like. (laughs) Yeah, really exciting. And to mix in that kind of company. Is it a challenge? Because I know one of the things that I think maybe differentiates Nordic Outdoor a little from some of those other players is a real passion, a real engagement with the outdoors. It's not just about selling a perception of what that is. Is that one of the key kind of points of difference, as well as being more fleet of foot, because you're a bit smaller, you can be a bit more nimble? Is it that trying to communicate to your potential consumers how genuine your engagement with the outdoors is? I've enjoyed the outdoors, and I think this is the key here. It's about enjoying the outdoors very much rather than doing extreme things. So it sometimes gets a little bit too focused on the idea of just outdoor for the sake of it. We like it to be woven into the, you know, what you do and what you believe in. So it's about being outdoors, enjoying it in whichever way you see fit. And that's what we want our retail to be about. So we might have very high-end stuff sometimes, but the basis for all this is about just functionality, but it needs to look good. And I think that's, that's maybe where sometimes the competition sort of are too functional. 
Well, yeah, let me ask you a bit more then about the actual offer, because there are brands that I think consumers will know better now, and you've helped to kind of surface them. I know, I think it was 66 North, you were the first maybe to bring into this market, and then these are brands that then kind of enter the the common parlance in this space. So go back to those moments when you start to build relationships with some of these brands. Is that what you're looking for? You just connect with the products, ultimately. It's no more complicated than that. They need to look good. They, of course, have to be highly functional but there just needs to be something that hits you on a very human level it's not that much more complicated than that yeah what makes it easy we don't exclusively do scandinavian but it follows certain sort of guidelines that we want a brand to stand for and often that will be scandinavian but there's the odd brand scandinavia might not hold totally approve of but there's also places. You don't have all the answers, is what you're saying. Exactly. You've got most of them. But... Exactly. But it's also, so we pick things often based on what it looks like because a lot of the other stuff is assumed. So functionality is just an assumed thing. That's what I'd like us to be different is that, you know, someone walks in and can actually pick things based on what it looks like. However, of course, certain things are good for various things. So we're there mm. to lead. But in a point, how something looks like can sometimes add to its functionality as well. And are there similar challenges around the assumptions, certainly that end consumers make, around how these businesses, the companies who make these products, how they work? I'm thinking in particular, in this sort of space, some of these ideas, the buzzwords at the moment, sustainability, circular production, responsible supply chains and all the rest of it. Do consumers now when they come into your retail spaces, assume that you are only presenting them with brands who are done the right way right from the beginning of the concept to the to the execution? Do they assume that you're kind of worrying about that for them so they don't need to worry about it? I don't think they do. I'd like them to. That's my competitive goals, so to speak, because I've got it sorted in that respect. For all that we know about what we do, there will be a sustainability story. The sustainability story might not always be the same story as we're fed in papers and things. One of the main things is longevity. Longevity of a garment can actually excuse a lot of other things. So if something lasts five times longer, there is an argument whatever materials you use could actually not be the most environmentally friendly because the longevity will do it. Of course, we'll try and get that too but it is that part of it rather than this whole obsession about there's a thing about recyclable and recycling now recyclable is a little bit and or using recycled materials now recycled materials the energy demanded to recycle certain materials for instance metal is huge Therefore, it is debatable if some recycled materials are that good for us, really. Same as recycling a material. Well, that depends. Is it a good thing to recycle or is it just sort of out of the principle? Well, this is, this is right because some of the recycling processes can be hugely energy intensive and costly. And I think this chimes in very much with a, a bit of a, a sort of a monocle edict in a space, which is about just by less and buy better. That's really sustainable. And I think it's really refreshing, particularly in the retail setting, for someone to zero straight in on that and say, it's not just 
this or that. It's not a box ticking exercise. You need to think about it a bit more. To that point then, what does the next phase look like for Nordic Outdoor? Because I guess one pressure when you're running a successful business that people like, they love the products that you're finding, there must be that pressure to grow. You've now got this London store, which is very exciting. Is part of the responsibility as a responsible entrepreneur to dab the brakes and make sure you're growing at a rate you're happy with, where you can retain control over the things that are most important. Is that a, a conflict for you to try and measure it, growth with retaining control and doing things the right way? Yeah, it's not completely decided yet. Bricks and mortar retail is my favorite. I love it. I tend to develop my business in, in bursts. So so you come to things. We we did look and we are still working on, but it's sort of on a hold a little bit in developing our own lines as well. But because times, it's tightened up a lot around here because we're insisted on making it in Europe. And because our idea of producing in Europe was all great, but unfortunately because of, well, Fortunately or unfortunately, with the Chinese and the Asian markets having so many problems with COVID, etc., a lot of big brands have moved back to Europe, which means that the price and rightly so, these suppliers have taken the opportunity to up their prices, which I'm totally on board with. Unfortunately, it does make it a lot less viable <laughs> yeah. for me. So, you know, I can wait with this. The process has started. The process is going so that's one thing. So at the moment, it's finding this balance between online and bricks and mortar. Covent Garden is a trial. It's a very expensive place to be. It's see if it functions. And then there is some development plans from that. Okay, uh, so it's exciting stuff. So how far ahead do you like to think, I guess, as a successful businessman, as a, as a successful entrepreneur, you kind of have to be focused always on the short term because lots of immediate challenges to tackle, but you have to have these sort of twin perspectives. You've got to be thinking about two-year, five-year time horizons. How do you marry up? How do you manage to keep your focus on all these different things at the same time? <laughs> yeah, I've, I've had some coaching and stuff and uh, they tend to tear their hair out <laughs> because I am, unfortunately, I'm not that... I'd like to read the minutes of those Yeah, meetings. I know, I'm not that organised, to be honest, it's a little bit... There is certain things, of course, because we deal with clothing and things like that, you need to plan based on buying cycles and that's year or, or more in advance. Of course, there's an automatic part of it that I'm forced to follow. The thing is with the retail climate at the moment, and especially bricks and mortar, is that the hard times has given more opportunities. We have been lucky in that COVID was not terrible for us because of online and when lockdowns were etc so it meant that we have done okay so it means that now if there is smaller opportunities available we can take them and those opportunities are available because sometimes it's other people's problems can be our opportunities so, so. well yeah on that basis so are you a subscriber then to this belief that you know some of the best innovations happen exactly at that moment of the greatest volatility and the most pressure and the unprecedented challenges. It seems you would say that certainly in terms of how Nordic Outdoor responded within the challenges of the pandemic. But generally speaking in business, do you think that that is a driver of innovation and consequently something we should maybe try and be positive and optimistic about? I really hated COVID. <laughs> I am sorry that I was. I hated it. I don't think you because, need to apologise. I think that's because, the, the majority. For no, you. but it, if anything, I, I hated it more than everyone else. 
But there was a thing there. On the eve of everything, we had furloughed everyone. It was my colleague Andrew and myself sat in the office, 20-odd people furloughed away, and we looked at each other. What do we do now? We knew we sort of were going to keep the, um, the online thing going. And then... I had been in a bit of a lull, business-wise. I felt like I wasn't motivated at all. And the panic that rolled in there suddenly could have gone two ways. It went the right way. And he did what he does, his sales and marketing and stuff like that. So he did that part of it and we redeveloped our website, etc. I went down into basics. I did some of the packing. I, I did all those sort of little things. I did go and get it in shops, etc. We were up in Edinburgh driving around in the lockdown. Almost have, well, once I had to explain myself to the police why I was out at all. And uh, I said, well, for business reasons, they allowed it. But it gave a certain kick there. Then as we've been after again, it's been down in a lull again. So you're absolutely right that for me personally, but also as a business, when the going gets tough, I tend to operate a bit better. Casper Odqvist, founder of Nordic Outdoor. You can learn more about the brand, its plans and all its stores. Just head on over to nordicoutdoor.co.uk. And that's it for this episode of The Entrepreneurs. We'll be back at the same time next week. The programme was produced by Laura Kramer with mixing and editing by Jack Dewars. My thanks to them as ever. And of course, thanks once again to Amanda and all the Pangaea team and to Casper and everyone at Nordic Outdoor. Listen again and find out more about The Entrepreneurs at monocle.com or follow us and catch up with the archive via your preferred podcast platform. To contact the team here at Monocle, why not email Laura at lrk at monocle.com. And don't forget, while you're about it, to subscribe to Monocle magazine. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs. The Entrepreneurs.